You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Jodoff. Hey, good morning. Thank you for some amazing singing earlier. That really, really blessed me. It has been 195 days since the outpouring services that we experienced in February concluded. And we went into March. March was utterly exhausting. And then we had April. Do you guys remember April? Neither do I. <laughs> we, <laughs> it was just like a dead sprint to the finish line. And then everyone left. And so I I continue to hear feedback from people on the importance for our community, our students, our staff, our faculty, our stakeholders, alumni, to talk about and to continue to process the outpouring. That's what I'm going to attempt to do today. And let me offer just a quick caveat with that. So do you remember the book of Job? Job and his partners are asking all of these questions of God. And then at the end of the book, God brings dozens upon dozens of questions to Job, like, all right, let me ask you some questions. And then in that final chapter, the NRSV says this, Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I could not know. And though the context is very, very different, I want to borrow those words from Job. Sometimes when I'm talking about this, I feel like I'm uttering what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I cannot know. So with that caveat in mind, I'm going to make my best attempt to offer some reflections to you. These are questions that are often asked of our leadership team, and they are just some of my own thoughts as well. And so that will be my format today. So first and foremost is this question of what made that happen? What made that happen? What, what were the causal mechanisms? My best answer to that is, it's actually a futile exercise to, to try to unpack, again, those causal factors that may have led to the time that we had together, not least of which we'll be attempted to replicate that in some kind of formulaic pattern and systematize it. It's just what humans do, right? That's, that's what we do. There are, however, some characteristics that tend to be associated with revival-type movements, and I just want to name a few of those. First and foremost, importantly, is confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Confession, the term in the New Testament I've said before, carries something like agreement, where we're agreeing with God. Uh, But it truly is this emptying of ourselves. You know, the day before, on Tuesday, February 7th even, for Black History Month, we had brought a friend to the school, Shay Brown. He is a pastor. He's also an archivist in Lexington. And he does this activity called a witnessing circle. And it's where you read property deeds from Kentucky that actually will recognize like a sack of potatoes, a horse, a table, and it will name slaves. And so the witnessing circle is actually people gathering together and just reading these deeds. We did that on Tuesday. It was really sobering. It's just sobering to read that. I know that our worship team and our gospel choir were praying over these seats the day before. And then our students, just their reactions, their willingness 
to be open. So confession and repentance. Second, it is associated with attention. I love, I love this expression, this kind of lingering and waiting and expectation. The author, Oliver Berkman says, your life is comprised of whatever compels your attention. I think that's really true. There was just this desire to, to stop and to attend. And finally, imagination. This is what I love about the Asbury community, and dare I say, makes us distinct, among other things, from any other school in the country, the spiritual imagination that has been grooved in some historical way throughout time and throughout our history. There's enough spiritual imagination to expect a powerful spiritual movement, and then there's a willingness to be disrupted to make space for that to occur. Chris Sager Lewis made a comment at the end of that. He said, you know, Asbury is like a riverbed. When water comes, it knows where to flow. I actually thought that was a really brilliant and accurate expression. We're like a riverbed. When water comes, it knows where to flow. So I don't think it's a terribly fruitful exercise to what were the causal things, but I know those are things that tend to be associated with outpourings, revivals, etc. Why did it happen? Why did it happen? Again, I would attempt to say, well, first and foremost, there are revival conditions around us. Did you know Tim Keller on Sunday, February 5th, and actually I think it was the last article he wrote for a mainstream publication before he passed away, wrote an article titled, America is due for a spiritual revival. Sunday, February 5th. People want an anchor amidst the dizzying swirl of social, political, economic, and cultural dynamism. And God comes to hungry people. We know that. James Stewart, not the actor, Scottish theologian, he said, Christianity is not for the well-meaning. It's for the desperate. It's true. Christianity is not for the well-meaning. It's for the desperate. You are living people's prayers as well. Prayers of individuals for decades. So many alumni have come to, I've been praying for this. I've been praying for decades with great regularity. I had an opportunity to be interviewed by several publications. And one of those publications that was pretty large said, why do you think this is so important to Gen Z? Why is Gen Z, why are your students responding like this? And of course, I gave the caveats like, <laughs> I'm not a sociologist. I'm, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not like some cultural commentator. But since you asked, <laughs> let me hazard an answer. I said, I think if, if you look at the world we've had in just the last couple of years, look at the craziness we've had in just a four-year period. Right now, we have global wars going on. There's been great economic uncertainty. There is just this terrible, acrimonious political polarization. We don't disagree with other people. We despise them. There's been a lot of social unrest. There's been racial injustice. Oh, and there was a pandemic that we all had to deal with. And we're hyper aware of this phenomenon because of the microcomputers that we carry in our pocket. And I just said, these burdens are asymmetrically felt by younger generations. Younger generations hold this differently than we do. They are freighted and they are cargoed in a way that older generations are not. They want something more. The next day, I was with a group of students and I said, hey, let me ask you guys. I, I was asked this question yesterday. Here's the answer I gave. I said, they want something more. Is that accurate? And Gabe Allen Gabe, you're awesome. We all know it, wherever you are. Gabe Allen was like, um, 
Yeah, I think I would agree with your comments, but I would put it differently. We don't want something more. We want something less. <laughs> we want something less. We don't want all the accoutrements of church and evangelicalism, the glitz and the glamour, the celebrity culture, the performative nature of some churches. I heard someone in this last year describe several modern churches as a Coldplay concert followed by a TED Talk. Have you heard that? Jake Meter says, we often think of church as content, and discipleship is content consumption. We want less. Strip all that away. And that reminded me, it's a brilliant comment, it reminded me of James Macaulay. He's a great poet, and he has this poem you should read called An Art of Poetry. But here's the final stanza in it. We know where Christ has set his hand, only the real remains. I am impatient for that loss by which the Spirit gains. Where Christ has set his hand, only the real remains. Everything else dissolves away. All the fake stuff goes away. Only what's real remains. And Macaulay says, I'm impatient for that loss by which the Spirit gains. If that's the cry of your heart, amen. Amen. Thank you. Why did it sustain I think it's sustained because of the collective spiritual imagination and the high spiritual temperature of the men and women in this community. It's the greatest community I've ever been in. Do we get some stuff wrong? Yeah, but it's the greatest community I've ever been in. There was an incredible willingness by the community to accommodate. That blew my mind. I've told people when I've been asked about this, you know, I don't think there's anything special about Hughes Auditorium I'll qualify that. I don't think there's anything special about Asbury. I don't think there's anything special about 2023 in the sense that God can use any space, any place, at any time to have an outpouring of His Spirit. I do think there's something special about the people. I will die on that hill. The deep, deep sense of godliness, the hospitality, the goodwill at great self-expenditure to make room at the table for tens of thousands of people to have an experience with God. Talking with students who said, you know, I'm a little unnerved. I'm unsettled by how many people have come here, but I want them to have the experience I have had as well. And I'm not trying to delegitimize or undermine the fact that this was very unsettling for many of our students. And that, that's real. If that were my son or daughter, I'd have some concerns. But other students were like, I'll do what it takes to make room at the table for others if they can have an encounter with God. It's incredible. There's something special about the people. What is it called? Um, <laughs> I thought this was rather amazing to me. There was so much scrutiny about the right title to give to what was happening. Now, on one hand, I understand that there's theological significance to different words that we use like an awakening or a revival or a renewal. I totally understand that. But I've said before to students that there's a, a category of book criticism I would describe as this. I've not read the book, but I have some concerns. Have you ever heard anyone who's done that? You know, I've not read that book, but let me lay out my concerns with it. I think that was happening here. I, I wasn't there, and I watched some 15-second sound bites, but let me spend 20 minutes telling you about my concerns with what was happening. I told Maria, I said, if you ever hear me judge something far away that I'm not proximate to, please remind me of this, please. My response to that would simply be this. 
if one of you came into my office in Hager for some of that delicious coffee, anytime, it's open, come on. If, if one of you came, or if one of my kids came into my house and you said, you know, I had some plans today, but I set those plans aside because my life got disrupted. I had this incredible spiritual encounter and I found myself at an altar of prayer. And while I was there, I confessed my sins and I repented, I made a turn towards God. And then I testified to God's goodness in meeting me there, and I worshiped him. And you know what? At the end of all that, at the end of multiple hours of that, I really feel like God revived my heart. If you were to say that to me, if one of my kids were to say that to me, my first response would not be, well, is revive the right word? Let's think about this. Or why don't we wait several months and see how this plays out and then we'll choose your vocabulary. I'm not saying that's not important, but what a silly thing to go to. I'd say, amazing, praise the Lord. I'm so happy for you. That's a good thing. We can figure out what to call it later. I've talked about John 9. Remember that? The blind beggar. And the blind beggar, he was interrogated after he was healed. And who sinned, this man or his parents? And then during the interrogation, they were asking about Jesus. Well, do you think he's a sinner? And then the blind beggar says, well, whether, the no longer blind beggar, whether he was a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I was blind, now I can see. Whether it was a renewal, a revival, an awakening, I don't know. Here's what I do know. 50,000 people plus came to this town, hungry hearts that were stirred to have a life-changing confrontation in some cases, or experience of an outpouring of God's Spirit. This community said, come. That's what I do know. What did I see? I saw radical humility. Time would not afford me the opportunities to give examples of this. It was Christians at their best. I saw raw confession. I remember being up in the balcony in those first couple of days, sobbing as I just heard some of our students confess things. For a student to say, I'm not seen, and then to hear the community say back to them, I see you, to to audibly say that, that was powerful. One student cried out, I hate men. I just wept. What What terrible experiences must someone have had with men to cry out in front of hundreds of other people and confess that? I heard, I heard confession of some really vulnerable things. It was raw confession. It was really powerful. There was collective hospitality and godliness. Hungry people, loaves and fishes, needs were multiplied in, in ways you will never believe. Again, the stories are amazing of how needs were met. When we had sectors of our campus, like our advancement office, say, do not ask people for money. You just go and serve. We're shutting down any of that. Needs were still met. I saw lingering. I saw transformation. I saw sensitivity to God's spirit. And I saw a commitment to righteousness above all things. A right relationship with God, a right relationship with others, far exceeded, far superseded any of the other things or preferences that may have been important to us otherwise. And I saw sacredness. Have you seen that little poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning? Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. There was just a sense that we were in a space of fire with God. I remember the president of the Wesleyan Holiness Connection flying in from Kansas. He got here late at night. Tall gentleman, he's really well-dressed. He walked in, 
he took off his overcoat, he dumped it right there, and he came and he just dumped himself on the altar. He'd been traveling the entire day. Sacredness. I remember the sheriff, Marty, I think from Boyle County, and I remember just scanning the room and I see this sheriff in his fatigues <laughs> worshiping. It's like he couldn't not worship at that time. I thought it was fascinating that even the, the groups that were doing worship, that were leading us in worship, were kind of tucked over on the left side of the stage. Now, maybe someone asked them to do that, but there was just this sense of, I want to get out of the way. Truly incredible. And there was an invitation to die. Christian Alexander's testimony is just amazing. But this description of Hughes as a beautiful graveyard. And finally, I saw John 17, unity. Let me say one other thing. I saw a cry of freedom, a cry for freedom from Gen Z. To be honest, I, I think that may have moved me as much as, if not more than, than anything else. You know, there were four prayers for Gen Z that dominated our prayer group when they came forward. Anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, and addiction. Those four things dominated. And I'll never forget that last day on the college day of prayer, whoever was speaking, I don't recall, but in this kind of prophetic declaration to 1,500 people of your generation and you saying, you will not be the generation defined by anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation and addiction. And there was just this cry from, from the audience. And I just, I thought, oh Lord, set them free from this freight, from this cargo that has just been placed on this generation. Set them free so that their testimony is that there is freedom and there is a robust identity and that there is victorious power for your generation. I will do anything for that. The people who work here will do anything for that. Lord, come. Lord, do that. May that be your testimony. What was I thinking about? I'm looking at the time, so I'll try to make these comments quick. But I had a discussion with two of our faculty members. There was a tension of thinking about how do we foster something historic that's happening within our community, yet how do we maintain the continuity of our student experience? We're chartered as an educational institution, we're a Christian institution, we're student-centric. And so how do we hold these two things together? And when those aims don't align, how do we prioritize the mission of our school? And I also want to say my thoughts were about who was not in the room. I just want to tell you, I was a little surprised reflecting back on everything that was happening on who was not, who was not in the room. You all just want to, I just want to say it out loud. I know how many people, I know how many people in younger generations, I know how many people in general has been disillusioned by Christians. People have been recipients of malformed and deformed expressions of the Christian faith. People who are cynical when they see moral failures of their church leaders and their ministry leaders. People who have felt manipulated spiritually. People where the salt has lost its saltiness. That breaks my heart. I wanted those people in the room. That was on my mind. That was on my mind a lot. Let me just close with this. Several years ago, my wife and I, we, our family, we lived near Indianapolis, and Maria was a part of an organization 
they're now called Malimbi Rise. It was giving back to Africa. It was educational initiatives and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, so there was this network of people that were involved in that. And they often met in Indianapolis. And there was just this wonderful, wonderful woman, Anne Marie Thompson. And the first time I ever heard her speak, she kept using this phrase, Malimbi, Malimbi. It's a Lingala phrase. And so I emailed her after that. I said, thank you. It was so nice meeting you. Your talk was wonderful. What does this phrase mean that you were using? Here's what she wrote me back. Ah, yes, Malimbi, Malimbi. It's my mantra. Literally, it means slowly, slowly. But as with most Lingala phrases, they are packed full of nuance and meaning. And so in this case, it also implies little steps Little steps, focusing on what matters and not being overwhelmed with the big picture, remaining faithful despite the long road. In contrast to that, if you were to talk to a biologist or a sociologist, you, you have other theories of change, like punctuated change or critical juncture theory that, in other words, change happens in these like bursts of acceleration, these intensified moments. And the reason I share both of these contrasting pictures is that the outpouring is an example of intensified change. It's kind of punctuated change. But the Christian life, is more characterized by malimbi malimbi. Are you tracking with me with what I'm saying? It's steadfast. The Christian life is daily steps. My favorite, one of my favorite poems, Robert Frost, really short, it's called Devotion. The heart can think of no devotion greater than being sure to the ocean, holding the curve of one position, counting an endless repetition. Devotion is like the shore saying to a wave, break on me again and again and again and again. The goal is not to chase revivalism, it's to live into the daily rhythms of Christ-shaping discipleship, patterning our lives after a distinctly Christian imagination of the world, habituating daily practices that shape our life, and continually emptying ourselves day after day so that God's Spirit can indwell within us. A daily hungering and thirsting after God. Little steps, little steps, malimbi, Malimbi, steadfast. The transfiguration story in Matthew 17 is this incredible picture of being on this mountain, this magnificent spiritual thing occurs. So much so that remember they say, we should live, we should camp here. And then all of a sudden in verse 17, it goes to, I'm sorry, verse nine, as they were coming back down the mountain. Two thoughts here. One, we don't live in the mountain. We don't live on the mountain. We live in the day-to-day -day complexity. <laughs> and it is complex, isn't it? Little steps, little steps, steadfastness. What God has done in us has to take on flesh in a sustainable, daily, steadfast way. That's the Christian life, little steps. But the second thing is Christ came down the mountain with them. Christ is with us. We're together. We don't undertake this journey alone. I think four of the most powerful words there are, are these. I am with you. I'm with you. There was a meeting we had during that outpouring I will never forget in my life, where we talked about the historic thing of what was happening in our students. And that's a hard tension. And can we work can we agree to hold that together? And it was a room of people, this doesn't happen very often in higher ed. <laughs> it's a room of people looking at each other saying, I'm with you, I'm with you. I'll do it with you. 
We'll do it together. We'll do it with God's spirit with us. Christ is with us. That's literally the definition of Emmanuel. Christ with us, and we are together, where we say to one another, I'm with you. I'll end with this. I have prayed that you would be marked forever, forever marked, even if it's 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road, whatever it is, when you have that crisis in your life, when you have that moment of questioning, when you've been disillusioned, when the salt has lost its saltiness, when you need to encourage a friend that you'll be able to draw from this well, that's my prayer for you. I started by saying it's been 195 days since we have come to the end of our outpouring services, but I pray that the outpouring of God's Spirit in your life has no closure. It has no conclusion. It has no end. That's my prayer for you. But that may look less like the punctuated change of an outpouring and more like the steadfast little steps of daily walk with Christ. Malimbi, malimbi. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you have done here for decades. Thank you for what you are doing now. Lord, please mark us, change us, make us more like you. That's our prayer. Whether it's a mountaintop or whether it's that steadfast daily walk in the complexity of our lives. But Father, help us to know you are with us. And may we be a people that can look at each other and say, I'm with you. He's with us. I'm with you that we can be as one, that we can have John 17 unity. Lord, among all things, we're grateful. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's powerful name I pray. Amen. Thank you.